0: It's been a long time coming, so I'm happy to announce the Historically Thinking Common Room, now on Patreon. We've needed a place to get everyone together where we can talk about important things like sourcing, runaway college tuition, taking exams, typewriter repair, liquor with important historical connections, network error codes, does CBD oil actually work, and if you named a range of cigars after members of Washington's cabinet, which shapes would be named after which cabinet members? All these, by the way, are topics of pre- and post-podcast banter. In some instances, they have been recorded. As a member and patron, you will get immediate access to a range of benefits, including a weekly podcast only for common room members, regular discussion questions from members to be used in both the exclusive podcast and our regular Monday podcast, ability to help choose topics for future podcasts, competitions and prizes, priority access to future gatherings and course offerings, and more to follow. We will continue to produce our regular podcast, which will be available for free on Monday in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to www.historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. My guest today is Mark Anderson, author of Down the War Path to the Cedars, Indian's First Battles in the Revolution. Mark has previously written The Battle for the 14th Colony, America's War of Liberation in Canada, 1774-1776. In a previous life, before establishing himself as one of the few American authorities on Revolutionary Era Canada, Mark was an officer in the United States Air Force. Mark Anderson, welcome to Historically Thinking.
1: Thank you, Al. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So uh, first of all, down the war path to the Cedars, what were what is the Cedars?
1: So this, the Cedars geographically is a, a point or a village now. Um west of Montreal on the St. Lawrence River. But uh, the, the title topic is a series of battles that occurred in May, 1776, uh, around that village um, as, the, as part of the American uh, invasion, continental invasion of Canada, that occurred from 1775 to 1776. And it was uh, part of the uh, grand withdrawal uh, that resulted when the, as the invasion fell apart.
0: So you begin the story with a fascinating character. Um, yeah, actually, now I'm thinking, I'm, I'm starting to believe think that he's one of the most fascinating characters of the American Revolution. Uh, a man called Louis Cook, or Lewis Cook, uh, by the Canadians and Americans, and you describe his visit to Washington's headquarters on, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, on August 1st, 1775. Could you... Describe that visit and, and who he was and where he was from. Certainly.
1: Um, so he's going to visit George Washington, who's only been in command of the new continental army, uh, for a little bit more than a month. And Washington's been at uh, headquarters in Cambridge for less than a month when, uh, Louis, as, as I refer to him in the book, that's his Mohawk name. Um, appears at the headquarters to visit General Washington. Um, start with the, the background of uh, Louis Cook or Louis atiato Um He was um, very interesting origins. As you said, he, he's a, a really interesting character. He was born sometime in the late 1730s or 17 early 1740s um, to a black father and an Abenaki Indian mother in the tiny frontier settlement of Saratoga, New York. Um, and in 1745, French, uh, Canadian and Indian uh, warriors descended on Saratoga in a raid, effectively devastated or destroyed the, the settlement and took many of the settlers captive back to Canada. Um Louis was eventually adopted into uh, the Gonawaga Indian nation. Uh, Gonawaga, uh, is Mohawk pronunciation, but it's spelled K-A-H-N-A-W-A-K-E in modern spelling, or C-A-U-G-H-N-A-W-A-G-A, or something like that phonetically in uh, revolutionary era correspondence. Um, He's adopted in the community. He gets some education from the um, village's mission uh, Jesuit priest. He comes of age right about the time of the French and Indian War. So he uh, rises to prominence as a warrior and becomes recognized as a war chief. And so by the time uh, the revolution starts brewing, he encounters some New Hampshire frontier scouts who convince him that it would be a good idea for him to go uh, visit General Washington and clarify the situation of the Gonawaga Nation and uh, the Confederacy that it's part of, the seven nations of Canada.
0: So, um, one, one question. Did, have you figured out why an Abenaki woman was in Saratoga, New York? That seems a little bit far afield. Uh, n- not specifically. Hmm. Um, so, what were, uh, some people might have heard of the Six Nations, but for those who haven't, you should explain what those were. And then what were the Seven Nations? And talk a little bit more about Ganawaga.
1: Okay. Uh, six Nations, uh, to catch up with those who are not familiar, are more commonly known as the Iroquois. Uh, they were originally five nations and then became six in the early 1700s. Um, there They're the Senecas, Cayugas, Onondagas, Oneidas, Tuscaroras, and Mohawks, and what is Western New York. Um, And they were the dominant political and military power in the early colonial era in that region and far afield. Um, They're uh, ethno linguistically organized in in their nations and had many settlements uh, within each one of those nations uh, spread out across that area. The seven nations. uh, have a later origin. They come about in the 1600s as uh, the French colonial government in Canada, then New France, and uh, the Catholic Church look to bring different Indian peoples into uh, uh, closer control and, and obviously uh, a mission orientation, uh, religious religion-wise, uh, both Jesuits and Suppician missions at different ones of these villages so there's uh seven villages kind of floats about as populations move about uh or seven fires uh count for council fires and each one of these villages uh, has one or more different ethnic groups Um Ganawaga is the central council fire of this confederation and it is a, a mohawk uh, linguistic village, but it includes people who have come from uh, different six Nations uh, tribes in particular, but it's they're all to some degree melting pots that kind of center around one uh, ethnic focus.
0: So that's that's very interesting. These are Mohawks. Uh, so these are so Ganawaga is begun as a is it a, a village of Mohawk Catholics of of Six Nations Mohawks who've decided to become Catholic or decide why have they decided to move to this location?
1: So there's all kinds of pressures in the late 1600s on the 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 Six Nations or Five Nations at the time as they're fighting basically on, on in every direction north and and west in particular. Um, and economic, demographic challenges. Um, So there's all these pressures going on. Um, In addition to religion, uh, the Catholic draw, uh, there's overpopulation or underpopulation, there's political differences. Um, So all these different uh, factors may have driven uh, people north to uh, Canada, you know, people that are more inclined to the French than the English. Uh, perhaps might be another influence. Um, there appears to have been a, a num- number of Oneida Indians as well as the Mohawks, but they, they agree that Mohawk will be the language uh, hmm. that they use.
0: But do they, do they maintain connections uh, back to their uh, former tribes in the Six Nations? Or are they? In, that's where it gets. Yeah, or in some, are in some way, they still part of those tribes.
1: That that's where it gets really fuzzy. Um, because it's really easy to think of them as two distinct con- confederations, but because of kinship tri- uh, ties, traditional ties, um, and some degree of political agreement between six nations and some of the seven nations, there there's many layers of connections there.
0: So, and this is very important to the story, your story, this history as it develops, is those those levels of connections. Um, I guess, I don't know if you said this already, but if, but I guess Ganawage and the other of the seven nations, they also increase through capture and adoption. Um, hence, Louis Cook, uh, who's who's Black Abenaki, but he can become, in in a, way, in a way that medieval Italians would have would have understood, a sort of fictive kinship, or they can become a member of the group. Yes,
1: um, that's a important uh, traditional practice amongst many of the, the Northern Indian nations uh, is uh, they can replace dead members of their village, tribe, community um, by bringing in a captive uh, of whatever um, background it might be, white, uh, black, Indian from another nation. And once they've gone through the adoption process, um, particularly in Ganawaga, in, uh, it is if, as if they are uh, completely uh, no questions asked a full up member of uh, that
0: village or community. So, how how big is Ganawaga, and how does how do the seven nations come uh, also compare in size to the six nations?
1: So, um, I, I, I'm drawing a blank on the actual population of Ganawaga. Um, it is. Pretty substantial. Um, I'm the number a thousand comes at to, to the top of my mind. Plus, um, there is a lot of uh, in and out of many of these villages as it's sort of an anchor, and people will move out, do something else, and then come back. So it's hard to pin down the, the number as well. But um, the, the Seven Nations villages are in the the hundreds to perhaps a thousand. Um, in general, whereas the six nations will consist of many villages of many hundred people. Uh, so it's probably, you know, just randomly throwing out a number, uh, a guest guesstimate is, uh, maybe 10 times hmm. the population as an average in the six nations, as opposed to any one of the seven nations.
0: Okay. Um, so the Seven Nations influence, as we'll see, doesn't come from their numbers necessarily, but in an interesting way through the connections that they have with multiple different um, Indian groups.
1: Yes, and the colonial power in Canada. Yeah. So they, for 100 years, they have this tight relationship with the French. They consider themselves independent. The French colonial authorities don't really like that. And there's complaints about how... Uh, Gonawaga considers itself a sort of republic when the French officials would really like it to just be a uh, little satellite nation that they can control. Um, but that each one of the seven nations is really on a key, uh, the villages are centered on a key avenue of approach into the St. Lawrence Valley. Um, and so e- each kind of looks out in a different direction and has influence economically uh, and politically out in those directions with some overlap.
0: So back to Lewis Cook. Why would he uh, go at the suggestion of New Hampshire Rangers to visit George Washington?
1: So uh, Louis had pro-American inclinations as the, the revolution started brewing. There, one of his uh, rel- relatives uh later wrote that he despised the British and that was his key motivation. But there's many layers of uh ties between Ganwaga and the Americans that makes Gonawaga the most uh pro-American of the seven nations in the revolution. Um there's the tradition the kin ties from those people who have been captives taken from New England or New York. <laughs> um Those people not only recognize their old families, but uh, uh, Indian practice is to use people who have been adopted as ambassadors with uh, their former homes and home peoples. Uh, There is uh, the the anti-British sentiment. Um, They fought the British in the French and Indian War. And there were some abuses by French soldiers in the interwar years between the French and Indian War and the Revolution War that uh, certainly aggravated some individuals. Um, And then there is also a uh, religious and educational tie in that uh, Eliezer Wheelock at Dartmouth College reached out to the Seven Nations as his other Indian education programs were failing as a means to meet his school's charter of educating Indians. And so there are several key chiefs in Ganawaga that have sons that are attending Dartmouth at the time of the revolution.
0: Yeah. So I was really excited uh, when your book sort of came across the transom um, because I admired uh, your previous book on, on Canada so much. And the more I read, um, the more I realize you know, how right you were in, in the 14th colony to draw our attention to Canada in ways that I think conventional narratives of the revolution ignore. The more primary sources I read, the more I see, for example, Governor Jonathan Trumbull, a senior of Connecticut. Uh, here's Connecticut. It's not a border state. Uh, in New England, it's not New Hampshire, it's not New York, it's not Massachusetts or uh, but he is obsessively interested in finding out what is going on in Canada. Um, what's, what is the root of this obsessive interest uh, uh, in Canada and in the condition of the seven nations?
1: So there's two major aspects. Uh, the first one that I really focus on in my Cedars story is the defensive aspect in that uh, since these the the villages that now composed the Seven Nations at that time had existed, they had posed a military threat to the New England and New York frontiers. As uh, Indian war parties, sometimes accompanied accompanied by uh, Canadian officers, uh, sometimes not, would raid the Uh, different settlements, take captives, and uh, plunder. And um, by the time we get to the French and Indian War, uh, the Seven Nations are joining the major French campaigns out of Canada. So uh, as it looks like a war is brewing in uh, 1774, 1775, it's natural that the northern colonies are going to look to the north in uh, what ha- is a strong pattern of attack from the north. They also have intelligence that British colonial authorities in Canada by late 1774 and on are regularly approaching the Seven Nations to try to get them to firmly ally themselves with the uh, British side. Uh, the intelligence over that period from uh the time of the First Continental Congress in late 1774 until hostilities start breaking out in April and May 1775, is that the Canadians don't really have much interest in fighting for the British side, but it's really hard to get a read on the Seven Nations. So that's the military situation. My other book, Battle for the 14th Colony, really focuses on the political. And that 1774, early 1775 period is very much politically focused. There isn't an expectation that they're necessarily gonna be fighting the British, but they want to show continental British North American unity against what they consider to be the oppressive uh, rule of the British ministry. So uh, as George Washington later said, uh, Canada was the only link wanting in the grand chain of continental union uh, to show resolve and unity against the British ministry. Um, But where the other 13 colonies have traditional English and mostly Protestant traditions, Canada is very different with its Catholic and French uh, language and ethnicity background. So it's a hard sell. Both the First Continental Congress and the Second Continental Congress send uh, letters to Canada Inviting them to join the the Continental Congress uh, before their, the invasion of Canada is launched, um, but for a variety of reasons, uh, there's only individual messengers effectively that go back and forth. There's not any sort of official delegation sent from Canada to the uh, Continental Congress, and then those two, the the political and the military, merge once hostilities begin, and they begin as both the defensive concern. Um, As the British might come to retake Fort Ticonderoga uh, and Crown Point that had been taken in May by Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold. And um, if the British can retake those forts, then the entire North will be open to military uh, offensive by the British from Canada, as well as the Seven Nations threat. And then there's, combined with that, concern that they can't bring the Canadians into the Congress, Continental Congress, until the British ministerial. Forces have been driven out of Canada.
0: So the Continental Army uh, marches into Montreal on November 13th. Um, are they are they, is are they welcomed? Do uh, this gets us back to your previous book, but uh, I mean, how, how what's the state of play amongst Canadians towards the their new American invaders or liberators, depending on on the, on your perspective as a, as an, an American? So it is.
1: Um it is very interesting. The uh, traditional version has been, of course, that uh, the Canadians would never consider joining the Americans because they were French and Catholic. Um, but the the reality, uh, as I explored it and I saw in, in the primary source documents, is uh, a lot more complex. Uh, they're, they're, they were slow to warm to the American invasion initially because it didn't look necessarily like the Americans were going to stay. They came in. I made a couple failed attempts to uh, land and take out the British fort at, near the border at Fort St. John's. Um, but they did have supporters, and there were both Seven Nations and uh, Canadian uh, partisans, effectively, that even before the invasion were regularly sending messengers to the uh, Continental Northern Army as it formed around Fort Ticonderoga, inviting them and even encouraging them to come into Canada and, and offering support, and some of those, uh, well, they formed a key Canadian partisan group that fought alongside the Americans once they really established themselves. Um, there, where uh, the Lake, Lake Champlain runs north into Canada, it becomes the Richelieu River, and along the Richelieu River, there was very, very strong support from both Anglo uh, Canadian and French Canadian. Partisans that took up arms and fought with the Americans. Once you get outside that region, it becomes a lot uh, less clear. It's more like the uh, the large chunk of people who just want to go ahead and leave their live their lives without having to to get involved in a war.
0: Although, as you uh, as I realized, um, it was kind of a duh moment for me. Um, Arnold's army what's left of it after in early 1776 outside Quebec in the midst of a Canadian winter they don't really go hungry so people are supplying the Americans throughout that winter
1: uh yes the the as I talked about the the Richelieu Valley partisans uh, made a great effort to gather supplies and help support the invasion and um, with Arnold's uh, advance through the main wilderness uh, down the Chaudière River Valley uh, to approach on Quebec City they didn't get military support but there were plenty of uh, French Canadians on their route that were happy to feed them uh, provide them transportation and take care of them as long as there was money involved mm-hmm. and uh, one of the problems with the American invasion is that eventually they run out of hard currency and have to start passing continental bills. And the French Canadians had particularly bad experience with paper money in the French and Indian War, um, basically a a foreshadowing of what's going to happen with continental currency. So from the very beginning, they're not interested in taking uh, continental currency, and that's when supplies start becoming a problem.
0: Back to Louis Cook. Um, What is his diplomacy? What's his... um... What does he want in the autumn of 1775? What's he trying to bring about?
1: So um, well, in his meeting back with Washington, he, he he went to reassure General Washington as the great American uh, war chief that the Seven Nations didn't pose a threat, uh, that they were not um, allied with the British, and that, in fact, they favored the Americans. Um, but he kind of is only telling part of the story he's telling his version of what's going on and what's occurring in the seven nations and the six nations is far more complex than, uh, the story usually is told. Uh, there's all sorts of layers within each community, uh, much like any, uh, community in, or most communities in English North America. At the time the revolution starts breaking out, there's people on all parts of the spectrum as far as where they stand in this war and many that just don't want to be involved. Um, So Louis' involvement is uh, that he really doesn't like the English, but he wants to make sure that the Americans understand that the Seven Nations aren't really chomping at the bit to go attack uh, the northern colonies again.
0: What then, how does this, uh, very briefly, um, I don't want to give away all the parts of the book, but in the end, at the Cedars, the Americans are defeated by a combined Canadian-Indian-British force. So how do the Seven Nations eventually decide upon their course of action as British allies?
1: So um, they really do not. The, the political structure of both six nations and the seven nations is uh, very hard to fathom for people at the time and many people today, in that it is they don't they don't have a coercive central authority. The whole political structure is really designed for internal peace, and so they have long deliberative councils when anytime there is something that is contentious, and if they can. Uh, agree to a compromise position, then they, they will uh, come to an agreement, and that is that has uh, some authority throughout the community. But if they can't come to an agreement, then they generally don't, but they leave room, th- their lack of a decision leaves room for individuals and groups within that community to go act on their own initiative. Um, John Parmenter and Mark Robinson describe this as active engagement or active neutrality. Uh, while at the village or nation level they are neutral, there are groups going out to both sides, uh, politically and sometimes militarily, uh, keeping a foot open in both uh, directions. And that is really what's playing out uh, throughout the Revolutionary War. Um, forces start pushing people farther and farther into different camps. But uh, particularly in the the early period, there's not nation-level decisions to go to war. It is these individual groups going out uh, and participating. So it is pro-British groups from the Six Nations that uh, align themselves with the British and start the approach to the uh, the Cedars in the spring of 1776. They're joined by another nation called the Mississaugas that are um, Ojibwe-related in the Lake Ontario region. Um, they're not understood very well by the uh, anybody at the time, uh, any colonials at the time, um, but they tend to be very eager to take the war path as long as it's in a good season. Uh, for their lifestyle. So come the spring, they join this effort. And really, the seven nations get involved because uh, there's a village, another village that's west of Montreal called Ganesatake, Um K-A-N-E-S-A-T-A-K-E, that is uh, actually three different, lingu- uh, three different ethnic groups, Mohawk, uh, Nipissing, and Algonquin. They traditionally have been very close to the imperial power. They were known as the the most loyal to the French, and as the revolution breaks out, they're the most loyal to the British. So during the early invasion, they sent the largest contingents from the Seven Nations to fight alongside the British, um, while the other Seven Nations had, uh, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six kind of levels of commitment to to, to fight alongside the British until the invasion, it became clear that the American invasion was going to succeed that in the fall of 1775. They all kind of went back home. Um, but the Geneva uh out of the seven nations, are unique in that they made agreements to join this offensive coming from the west to attack the Americans that ended up being an attack on the Cedars. And then, as this, uh, the British and the Six Nations uh, war parties and the Mississaugas are coming. Descending down the St. Lawrence uh, to attack, they stop in the village of Aquasne, which is another one of the Seven Nations. Uh, it is really a colony of Ganawaga. Uh, or At least that's how it was founded. But as they see this massive war effort going, uh, they contribute 50 some warriors to the effort as well. So it's really two uh, of the Western Seven Nations that have joined on the British side while the Ganawagas, uh are more f- uh, on the American side. And an interesting uh, thing that I ran across in my research that I don't think anybody had seen before is that uh, Louis Cook, Louis Adi- Adi- uh is actually a captain of Indian scouts in Continental Army pay during this time. And it's his scouts that provide the first warning that this force that ha- the intelligence had indicated that the British and Indians were going to be attacking, but it's his scouts who actually encounter the first of this force coming from the west to attack uh, the Americans at, at Fort Cedars.
0: So what happens to to, to Louis Cook? Is he he gets pushed farther away as as this sort of civil war uh, affects the seven uh, nations and six nations. He ends up taking sides. Uh, more extreme sides himself. Yes.
1: Um, so uh, a quick snapshot in the fall 1775 invasion, he is really playing more of a diplomatic and intelligence role. He doesn't actually fight alongside the Americans, but he's working to try to defuse the the Indian situation and provide intelligence about what's going on and affect communication between uh, General Philip Schuyler, General Richard Montgomery, and the Gonawaga Council to try to work out a, a neutrality while that invasion is going on. Then he leads efforts uh, at, through the winter of 1775-1776 to get the Gonawagas to help uh, to reach a more formal agreement with the Americans. And they actually have a treaty uh, that they sign uh, guaranteeing neutrality. From there they go to, there's a delegation that has met in Albany for this treaty. They go to uh, Cambridge, meet with Washington again, get his agreement to this treaty. And they actually offer, even though they've just signed a uh, treaty of neutrality, they offer to provide uh, warriors to help the American side as uh, Louis does uh, in that spring when the the Fort Cedars campaign comes out. And then as you were alluding to, um, as the Canadian campaign falls apart, He's actually the last person to see Benedict Arnold off as Benedict Arnold <laughs> pushes off in the last boat leaving Canada. Uh, from there, he'll eventually uh, join up with the Americans and then find a new home uh, for most of the war in, with the Oneidas, who have taken a, continue to take a more pro-American stance and eventually take up arms uh, alongside the Americans.
0: I, I, is he at um, what? What's for him? The second Battle of Saratoga? Is he is or is he at Valley Forge with the Uniteds? I mean, what? What's? What's the rest of his career during the Revolution?
1: So um, he's all over the place. There <laughs> are legendary accounts that place him at the Battle of Oriskany but I huh. was unable to find any primary source support for that. Not saying that there that it isn't out there, but I did not find it. Um. He is at Valley Forge. There's a a fun account from one of the French officers of him hearing somebody singing in French and finding out that that it's this Mohawk from Canada. Um, He goes to uh, with an Indian delegation to meet the French in Rhode Island in 1780 or 81. I'm drawing a blank on which one of those it is. But there's actually a uh, drawing or painting of what... Uh, Is probably him in this meeting with the French officers, and throughout all this, he um, has a very great reputation. And eventually, he becomes uh, he receives a commission as a Continental Army lieutenant colonel, uh, the highest rank of any non-white uh, in the Continental Army.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, one of the reasons why my my jaw dropped when uh, I started reading the book was because I know him um from a painting uh it's john trumbull's death of montgomery um which shows uh, the battle of quebec of december 31st uh 1775 1776 and in which uh louis has a center uh central role in the uh, tableau which shows montgomery uh, being cut down by a charge of grape shot uh but come to find, reading your book, that on December 31st, 1775, Louis was not at Quebec City.
1: That is correct. Um, that was a, a minor surprise as I started to, to delve into the story. Um, he was, uh, as I was talking about before, he was at that point on his way uh, to Albany to, to sign the treaty and, and eventually ended up being his trip, to, second trip to Cambridge to to visit Washington. So he was not there with General Montgomery uh, as Montgomery and Benedict Arnold tried to attack Quebec City. Um, but he ends
0: up in the painting. Which is interesting. Yes. Why do you think that is? I have, I have a theory, but what's yours? So, um, uh,
1: starting with uh, John Trumbull's source material, which is effectively to, to a playoff of Benjamin West's death of general Wolfe at Quebec in 1759. Um, that painting was innovative. Um, I'm not an art expert, but a uh, uh, new approach in that it uh, showed its players in uh, contemporary attire, as opposed to harkening back to classical times and was really a a composition to show uh, something more than just the scene. So in West's Death of uh, Wolfe, which is structured very much like Trumbull's Death of Montgomery, you've got um, Highlander officer who wasn't actually there. You've got a um, Mohawk that is contemplating General Wolfe's death, uh, probably symbolic of... Iroquois support for the British, even though, uh, if they had any there, I, I don't believe there was any a sizable uh, force at Quebec in 1759. So I think Trumbull adopted all that in his "Death of Montgomery," and of the people portrayed in the painting "Death of Montgomery," uh, Louis is not the only one who wasn't there. There is uh, General William Thompson. Uh, from Pennsylvania, who's depicted there. He didn't arrive in Canada until uh, June. And there are several officers who were on the other side of Quebec City at the time of the attack with Benedict Arnold who are included in the picture. So it's more representative of the overall effort in Canada. And I feel like Louis was included because he was representative of the fact that there was Native support for what was going on on the American side.
0: Yeah. Um, I think what, another reason is is that Trumbull had met him. Yes. Trumbull knew what he looked like because Trumbull was serving during his three weeks as being aide uh, to Washington and then being aide to Horatio Gates, who's then the adjutant general. Um, Trumbull would, would have been there on August 1st, 1775, and probably knowing him because he's ordering inks and, and paints and stuff from home at the time, he's probably sketched Louis.
1: Yes, Um, and that's another interesting thing about uh, the painting uh, of Death of Montgomery is that because um, it isn't necessarily clear who all the players are, that Trumbull actually identified the different participants. So we know that that is supposed to be Louis, Um, and uh, some of those people he hadn't met. But as as you said, um, he was at Cambridge at the same time that Louis was visiting General Washington and we yeah. have been in close proximity.
0: Yeah. It's kind of like, I, I think he knew that he knew what Thompson looked like, for example, because Thompson was also in Cambridge that uh, autumn uh, and went up to Canada, what in the spring later, right? Yep. Uh, after, after the battle. So he probably put him in because he knew what he looked like. For some reason, this is very important. For, this is very important for him in several of his paintings, like the Declaration of Independence to, have some sort of uh, likeness of of someone that was more or less accurate, uh, but he didn't have one of Montgomery. He didn't really know what Mont what Montgomery looked like, uh, yep. which is ironic in some ways. Um, my my hypothesis about this, and you, you'd appreciate this, uh, given what you've been writing about, is I think that in some ways this is also his um, this is Trumbull's tribute to the Northern Army, the the the, the army in Canada. Uh, he had been um, the officer who had to go from tent to tent to count the army as it retreated in June, June 1776, uh, at Crown Point. Um, and when people are dying of uh, smallpox and typhoid and lake fever and God knows what all else. And um, so he had seen the wreckage of the, the force that had gone up to Canada not just in the winter, but also in the spring of 1776, and then he would seen what ha- happened to it afterwards. So, in in some, this is not just a tribute to the dead Montgomery, but a tribute to the dead army.
1: Yes, that sounds legitimate.
0: So, what are you at work on now, Mark, um, in your um, your quest to make uh, Canada important again to the American Revolution? So I. Um
1: keep myself busy on a regular basis with articles about different things that I find that think other people might find are interesting about uh, Canada and the American Revolution. And then with my uh, work on the Cedars, I had never considered myself a uh, Native American history uh, expert. I still got a long way to go there, um, but uh, have feel like I have a strong background in that from my Cedars work. And uh, I'm looking at uh, that connection of different Indian nations with the American side there's uh you know, everybody takes it for granted that the Indians took up with the British, but there are lots of exceptions to that rule and uh, i'm I'm looking to investigate that
0: so who who are some of the exceptions to that uh, other than the Oneida, which you've mentioned already?
1: Yeah, so we have the Oneida, we have the uh stockbridge uh Mohicanook Indians from uh Massachusetts. And they're with the Continental Army from its earliest stages at um, the Siege of Boston. Uh, and they've kind of are in and out of the Continental Army in different degrees. Um, there are the Gonawagas. Um, mm-hmm. There are the Catawbas and the Carolinas. And then I have a handful of other uh, groups that. Made commitments and may or may not have participated, and I have to kind of filter how far down the road I'm going to go on uh, those other groups. Oh, there's also Abenakis um, that uh, are doing a lot in New Hampshire, uh, helping protect the northern frontier. That'll probably
0: yeah. When you look at um, and this is these are much harder to tell, but when you look at muster rolls and such like. You'll find also uh, Eastern uh, Indians who have been sort of um, – the bureaucracies have forgotten them. They've been sort of officially disappeared. So um, Delaware will say, hey, we don't have any Indians living um, amongst us, I think in 1768, 1770. But actually, they probably had several hundred Nanticoques still living in Delaware.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, they might be uh, have intermarried uh, with blacks and whites. Uh, but they're still there, and you can sometimes see people described as an Indian in um, in places where you'd say to yourself, "Hey, there can't be any Indians there," but there they are. Um, and so that I, it's hard to to get at that information, um, and uh, it requires uh, it requires data mining, probably eventually, to figure out where all those people are. But they're there.
1: Yep. Um, yeah, Colin Calloway's uh, recent book. Uh, the chiefs now in this city not only address, addresses Indian visitors coming into colonial cities, revolutionary cities, but talks about those that are just part of the the fabric um, that kind of get lost in uh, the depths of those cities. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, my guest today has been Mark Anderson. He's the author of Down the War Path to the Cedars, Indian's First Battles in the Revolution. Mark, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking.
1: Thanks, Al. It's great to have an opportunity to be part of the conversation.
0: Just a brief reminder, while great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting.